Welcome back, you guys. This is week 39 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. And this is our third in the five-week series on Isaiah. And I have some really good news for you. This, I would say, I mean, I haven't studied the last two, so just don't quote me on this, but I really feel like of the three so far that we've studied, this week is by far the easiest. It's not that it's not great. In fact, I think it's got some of the most beautiful verses that we've ever studied in the entire Old Testament. But what I think is really powerful about this one is it doesn't seem to be in code. (laughs) And honestly, it's just got a bit of an optimistic message. I just found that as I was studying, there were bits and pieces that were hard to understand that I had to go kind of go back and get some historical reference on. But for the most part, most of the verses were kind of easy to digest all on their own. And they just had this I don't know, this like surge of hope in them. Isaiah has been warning and prophesying about destruction. And in the middle of what we studied last week and this week, which is really only a few chapters, we have that destruction that happens in one form. So the Assyrians come in, they conquer. You get you got Hezekiah who's defending Jerusalem and he's actually listening to Isaiah. So he's one of the kings that will actually heed Isaiah's warnings. And because of that, the whole focus of what Isaiah can teach turns. I just found this uh, like a really powerful overarching message of this particular week that when you choose to follow the prophet, when you choose to actually heed whatever it is he's trying to teach us, the whole trajectory of what the prophet can then say changes. I don't know if there was something else that he would have said otherwise, but I feel like in this position, Isaiah's lips are loosed and he can shout out prophecies of peace and joy and hope. And I just think Isaiah must have delighted to be a prophet at this point in time. I know he found joy in other places throughout all of his ministry, but this one where Hezekiah listens to some degree and the people are trying to come back to Jerusalem and they're trying to live up to who they're supposed to be, must have been just delightful. I just think he deserves it. (laughs) Anyway, so hopefully you'll really enjoy this week of study. Just like we've talked about in the past, each and every chapter, we're going to try and focus on what you can learn about the character of Christ, who he is to us individually, and how we can know that he sees us individually by studying these particular verses. Also, as always, I encourage you to pray about your stewardship and take those prayers into your study. Filter everything you read through, you know, this lens of Heavenly Father, what do you need me to do with my family? What do you need me to do for my calling? What can I do to be a better disciple of Christ? And then let Isaiah's, especially these words that are so full of bright, audacious hope, let them just kind of soak in because I promise you're going to love it. Okay, we're going to go from 40 all the way to 49. So we've got 10 chapters to cover. I think that's enough introduction. Let's get our scriptures, get our notes and get started. Isaiah's tone is going to sound really different in chapter 40 because he's directed to comfort the people. I get the feeling this is almost that the calm that comes after the storm. You know, in the Book of Mormon, when they've had destruction for days and darkness that no one has ever experienced before, that level of hard, that's what they've dealt with with the Assyrians. And now there's just this respite that's come. And Isaiah is told to bring peace and comfort. What I think you have to remember about that phrase, comfort, especially if you layer on what we learn in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, is that 
comfort from the Lord isn't necessarily comfortable. <laughs> you know, when I picture someone comforting me, I picture them putting their arm around me, maybe wrapping me up in a really warm, fuzzy blanket. I think all of my kids know that if they need to get me a Mother's Day gift or a Christmas gift, just get mom something fuzzy and warm and she'll be happy. That's what I picture when I picture comfort. But I think the more I read these verses, not just these, but some more that we're going to see today, I the image that, don't make fun of me for this, but the image that kept coming in my mind is more like Rocky. So instead of this warm, fuzzy blanket, you know how when he's finally done with the round and the bell dings and he goes back to his corner with his coach and the coach like puts this towel on him and like squirts water in his mouth and bandages up the wounds in a hurry. That's the kind of comfort I think the Lord is referring to. It is a break. It is a respite. It is a time of renewal. It does not mean you are done. And it certainly doesn't mean you're going to curl up with something fuzzy and lay by the fire. It means you're going to get back in the ring in just a minute and he wants you empowered. That's how I see the temple now. It is a place of rest and respite, but it is designed to give you the surge of empowerment that you need so that you can go out and you can do good in all kinds of places. That's the kind of comfort he's talking about. If you want to learn more about the scripture references that led me to that understanding, go in the notes and you can find a bunch more. But I love the way it's taught from Moroni. I love the way it's taught from Joseph Smith. So go in the notes. You can learn a lot more. But just don't don't intend to feel comfortable in the Lord's comfort. Um, but he does give us some guidance about what's going to come next. So when you flip the page, you'll see that this is more focused on, before the second coming, our role to play. This, there's a lot of, this is Isaiah, so he's going to have a lot of different layers of meaning behind each of his prophecies. So there will be people who will prepare the way for the Savior's actual coming when he comes in mortality. There's going to be references to when he comes again in the second coming. This one, I think, is more focused on the second coming because it talks a little bit more about Zion. So if you look around 9 and 10, there's this really cool visual of people who are coming to Zion and lifting things up, that they're going to go to a high place and not just to be in the tops of the mountains, but to do something. So here's what I loved. If you look around 9, it says you're going to get thee up to the high mountains, that you're going to lift it up and not be afraid. And then in 11, we find out why we need to go up to this high place. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them into his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The reason we need to make ourselves worthy to be in Zion and to be a Zion-like people is not so we can live in an idyllic place. It is so that we can be where he is, so that we can get enriched and empowered. We can have that kind of comfort so that we can go out and do what needs to be done. And that's what he's going to try and teach the children of Israel over and over again, especially in this week's chapters, that he wants to endow them with power so that they can go out and fulfill that Abrahamic covenant and get back on track. They won't always listen, but that's what he's hoping for. What I love is what you, how you see it play out. So he gives you credibility in the verses where he talks about why we should trust him. So in 12, he talks about how he's the creator of everything, that he measured out the waters in his hand. I, I kind of visualize this like when I make a really familiar recipe, I don't even need measuring cups anymore. I know exactly how much sugar goes in my challah bread. I know it really well, and I can just dump it right in. That's the the Lord created this earth using his own hands as a measuring tool. He knows exactly what's happening. The span in Old Testament times just means from the tip of the finger to the elbow. So when he talks about measuring the heavens with a span, it's everything is based on him. There's just cool temple imagery all over the place. 
I also love when you go a little bit further, he talks about their tendencies. So many times in this week's chapters, he's going to warn them about graven images and worshiping idols. Because we know this about the children. <laughs> when they struggle with outside contention or inner contention, when things aren't going well in either sphere, they have a tendency to revert back to whatever temptation is easy for them. And for the children of Israel, it tends to be idols. For us, I think it's actually really similar in that we tend to seek out comfort. Instead of seeking out the Lord's comfort and empowerment, we seek out what is comfortable. We seek out what is familiar. And all of us have different outlets for that, right? And so he's warning you, whenever you see him warn about idols or graven images this week, plug in your own temptations. Where do you turn? I don't know if it's Netflix or Instagram or whatever it is, wherever you turn for comfort instead of the empowering choices of the Lord, plug that in and then focus on what you can do better because he's going to warn you about it a couple times. I also love the way he talks about how we're going to accomplish this work. And given the fact that we're weak and we have a tendency to fall back to our old ways, he talks about how, and it's around verse 26, 27, and 28. So this is where he says he's going to call us by name, and I love what you see at the end of 26, that by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power and not, not one faileth. It is not because we will be so powerful and empowered that we are able to accomplish his work. It's because he is. It reminds me a lot of what we studied back with Joshua and Caleb. Remember when they wanted to go into the promised land and they'd been wandering and now it's time and they're getting right there and they go in as spies and the other 10 spies say, there's these giants and these walls. And Joshua and Caleb say, oh, there's fruit and we can do this. And if you compare us with God, if you add God to the equation, there's nobody that can defeat us. No giant is taller and people don't listen. And I feel like that's what Isaiah is trying to teach us again. He's saying, you, your limited, weak state plus God is undefeatable. Look at, look at how he says it. He says, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching in his understanding. He simply can't, by his nature, weaken. He can't lose strength. What I love is what you see when you go even further in 29. He then gives that power to us so that we can increase in might. He knows that our own natures aren't like this. And so he willingly gives us that strength. When we choose to live his commandments, when we honor our covenants, we are endowed with power. That's the kind of power he wants to give us so that we can have this unwearying strength. And it kind of hits a climax in 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is an incredible promise. There's a lot of references, even in just this last conference from Sister Wright and uh, who was the other one? Elder Gong. I give them to you in the notes. They both talk about the, the virtuous spot of waiting on the Lord and how that's a holy place, even a holy posture and a holy position, because it implies I have hope. When you wait upon the Lord, it means I have hope that even if this day is dark, I can be strengthened and there will be light. It implies that even if my wings feel so weak on my own, I believe that there can be power brought back in and I can soar as an eagle. Really what I think it boils down to is to believe and wait on the Lord means to trust in the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that it can overcome any weakness, any sin, any 
any departure from the Lord's path. And if we trust in that leaning space, we trust in his atonement, then we can accomplish all these things that he He hopes for us. And I, I mean, isn't that a power-packed way to start this week's study? You don't want to miss chapter 40. The Savior is always inviting us to come near, to come unto him. And that's how he starts things off in 41. Through Isaiah, he reminds the children of Israel that he wants them close. Let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. It's almost like he's sounding that bell after a round of boxing and he's saying, okay, let them come back to the corner. Let me let me take care of them for a minute. Let me coach them and guide them before they have to go back into the fight. And so he asks them to be of a good courage. And he, he tells them about the servants that he's prepared to help this process happen. He warns them about false idols yet again. And then he tells them the blessings that come from being part of this covenant. He wants them to he wants them to feel empowered as they leave that corner to go back into the fight. And the way he's choosing to do that is to have Isaiah talk about the blessings that come from listening to this epic coach. So you see them play out in the verses. First, he reminds them that they are chosen. Despite all of the history of their parents and their grandparents who may have fallen away from the church, they are a chosen people. And he has chosen them. I'm cast thee not away in verse 9. When you go to 10, you see the blessing that they don't need to fear. He's going to say that a few times. They don't need to be afraid. They don't need to be dismayed or confused. He will strengthen them. They will have the help they need. I think you see that in Rocky all the time. <laughs> Sorry, you guys are going to get so sick of this reference. But it's just, you know, I can almost hear I have a tiger in the background when I read these scriptures because it's like he he knows that even though they feel like they don't have another, you know, like ounce of strength to give, that he can find a way to give them what they need if they will just follow his guidance. So he talks to them about it. He says that he'll be with them, that no enemy can contend against them. doesn't matter who he's up against. They'll have the strength they need to be successful. For us as parents, I think that's really valuable because my enemies are not just my personal temptations, but also all the ones that attack my kids. Those are my enemies. And I need all the strength I can get to combat them. I, I don't, can't do it for my kids. They're going to have to make their own choices. But I feel like what the Spirit offers me, especially as I turn to the Spirit for comfort, this endowment of power, I get understandings. I get ideas about how to teach, when to say, say things, what, what to do in certain situations that help my kids avoid common traps they would fall into. That's the, those are the enemies that I'm thinking about when I think about how He will help me defeat my enemies. You go a little bit further, again, He talks about fearing not that we don't need to be afraid. I, I think as parents, it's really easy these days to be afraid. There are a lot of forces all over the place coming at our kids. And I don't exactly know the right words or how to say things. So the idea that I don't need to be afraid that I'll have what I need is a pretty epic promise. He also promises something interesting by saying he's going to make us a different tool. So this is around 15. He says, I'm going to make you a tool for threshing. He's going to make you a very sharp gathering tool. But what was really fascinating to me is when I studied this, normally when you thresh wheat, they would go out into the fields, bring it down from the hills or from the plains, and then they would take it to the city center on a big rock and a big flat area and thresh it. What he's saying in this verse is, I'm actually going to make you an instrument that you can go thresh where the wheat grows. It's, it's this like time-saving, energy-saving opportunity. Here's what I thought was so cool about that. I think the Lord is able to do things with us that we can't even picture or envision. 
especially as parents, if you will choose to be comforted in his way, he can turn you into a tool that you have never even seen before, that you can't even understand how it's possible, how you could connect with your kid who's so hard or so distant, or that you can find a way to pivot around some kind of obstacle that you never could have pictured. I just love the, the ingenuity of it. I, I picture God as a creator, not just in making things, but in reinventing things and changing things to make it work for our good in our time. I just, I love that piece of it. Okay, some other things he promises that you he will have these open rivers in high places, places where you can go for restoring, right? Where you can you can get strength when you need it in those high places. And that he will plant things. So really around 19 and 20, there's this really cool, I, this is how I read it. He basically talks about a bunch of different trees that he's gonna grow all in one place. And that because they all grow in one place, they actually get strength from each, from each other. This is how I see the church today. There is so much diversity across all the continents and countries. And that as we come together as a church under common leadership, we actually draw strength from our diversity, that we are different from each other. I listened to a podcast recently about some women who have this particular calling. One was Scottish. I can't remember. There were a few different accents that were happening. And the way they spoke about their callings was so powerful to me. I Their testimony of the Savior sounded similar to mine and to my sisters and to anybody I know, but, but there was something unique and different about their perspective. And I grew in strength by just listening to it. I just think that's the church, right? It's We're unique and different and we're planted close together so that we can draw from each other, so that we can, what you see in 20, that you'll see, that you'll know, that you'll consider and you'll understand together. That's the promise. And I love all of those. Then at the end, he warns about what else might happen. So he talks about wind and confusion. This is at the very end of 29. The reason I still would draw your attention to this one is I think this is what happens when we hear, it's not even necessarily false doctrine. It's just not aligned doctrine. So it's like theory or, you know, somebody's opinion about what scriptures might mean. And I just think it's, Sometimes it can cause a stir in you. Sometimes you'll read things on Instagram or other places and it'll it'll feel like a strong wind and you think, oh my gosh, what maybe I was wrong or maybe I didn't understand that right. What I think is pivotal is understanding what follows this wind. What follows this type of wind is confusion. When you feel confusion about the gospel, you know it's like a red flag. There's something that's off. The promise that you get in Galatians, and this is in the notes if you want to go deeper, but that the fruits of the Spirit are love and peace and joy and kindness. You know, like All those things are the fruits of the Spirit. So if the Spirit is prompting something, it's not going to end up in confusion. It's going to end up in clarity. And I think it's a way for us to kind of have discernment to know which is which. But you'll get more understanding of that as you jump into 42. So let's go there next. I feel like 42 is, it teaches you the opposite of wind and confusion by teaching you about the characteristics of Christ. You see them right on the surface. There's a lot of other applications you can use for these verses, but of course, Jesus Christ is the pinnacle one, so I'm going to focus there. So if you look in one, it talks about this servant that's been prepared and that in whom his soul delights, right? It's this God the Father speaking of his son as this servant who will come and, and save the world, and he delights in who he is. I just love that word choice. I realize these weren't written in English, but it's just this utter joy that comes from 
from who Jesus Christ is and who he is is what happens in the next few verses. So like in two, that he's not going to come loud and he's not going to be boisterous. He's not going to stand on a soapbox. He's going to come to this quiet Galilean area and he's going to teach, but it's going to be a quiet storm. You know, he is a teacher who changes hearts and changes things fast, but it's not by being loud and boisterous. You also find that he's going to be careful around those who are fragile. And I love that. That's in three. In four, you learn that he will not be discouraged and he will not fail. What's powerful to me about this is the fact that Jesus Christ lived the life that he did, especially in mortality, that he didn't get discouraged is remarkable to me because even his disciples turned away. I mean, Judas betrays him. How does he possibly not get discouraged? And I had to learn this a little bit with my calling recently. So since like last February, I've been teaching the YSAs. I talk about them all the time, but it's my stake calling. And for the, what's tricky about that calling is I have no idea who's going to show up each week. I work my guts out to try and make a lesson that I think will be great and that is what it needs to be. And then I just sit there at like 6.55 and hope someone comes. Because <laughs> it's, you know, I'm not like in a university where people are, get a grade for it. You know, it's like they they can choose to come or not come. And sometimes they're at home and sometimes they're at work and who knows. And you just never know who's going to come through the door. And the first like five or six weeks, I would struggle because I would take my cues from those who came. Like, okay, if more come the second week, that must mean I did a good job the first week. And then the third week would come and I'd have like four people and think, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? And it wasn't until about, you know, eight weeks in that I started to realize it doesn't really matter how many kids show up. If, if even the one that I needed to teach that time shows up and I teach and the Lord is pleased, that's enough, right? I don't need to be discouraged. And honestly, it started to shift in my mind that I need to every week look up for reassurance, not out. Don't worry about that. The, the people who need to be there will be there. The Spirit will take care of prompting them when they need to be there. My job is just to teach whoever walks through that door. So that's been my mentality since then. Like, don't worry about it. Look up for reassurance. And it made a huge difference. So I don't feel as discouraged and I don't feel as frustrated. Um, and I don't think I can fail. I think there's never going to be a week where I'll feel like a failure if. When I look up and when I pray at the end of the night, was that okay? And I feel at peace, then I can't fail. That's the promise. So hopefully that can fit with your callings as well. But um, I love the way he talks about us being a light. So it sort of shifts tone a little bit around six. This is when he's talking to his covenant children about what he needs them to do. He talks about how he's called them, how he will hold their hand. He will keep them and he will give them for a light. So it says at the end of six, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. It's a promise that when you choose to stand in your sphere, whatever it is, whether it be in your little YSA calling or something else, and you choose to look up and do the best you can, light will emanate out. It's just a promise. It doesn't matter. I don't have to do very much to, to accomplish that because the Lord wants light to go out and we're imperfect and he's going to work with that. And it's just this, it reminds me of King Lamoni. I think it was President Eyring who's, who has a talk in the notes that used King Lamoni as a reference on this verse, but he taught me about when King Lamoni feels this light, he talks about it being joy infused upon his soul. And that's how I feel. The other night at YSA, I had like four people. We sat around a campfire. I taught a lesson, but I felt joy infused on my soul because I, I was at the right place at the right time. I'd prepared as much as I could. And it was a 
it was great. <laughs> it was great, you guys. And so I just felt peace. Um, he also talks a little further on about new things. This week's chapters will often talk about new things that are coming and how they can't just lean on the old. The Jews have a tendency to, to lean way back on miracles that have happened in the past, like the Red Sea and the Jordan and water gushing out. And he wants them to remember those, but he wants them to look forward to new things and to sing new songs. So in 10, you say, he says, sing unto the Lord a new song, praise him in a new way. What I like about this is we have a tendency to um, to rest on our testimonies. If I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon that came when I served a mission or something, I might reference that for years and years. And he wants us constantly singing new songs of faith. I should have new examples in my life, weekly, even daily sometimes, of how the Spirit affects me, how I know that the Lord is with me. I can't, if I'm leaning on songs that I sung when I was 20, I'm missing something and I need to re-engage. That's what he wants the children of Israel to do as well, to sing these new songs. Then he promises a few things. He tells them He tells them they're going to need to get prepared for new things that are coming their way, that he will make darkness light, that he will straighten out crooked things. Um, I think all of that works through the Holy Ghost and you can learn more about that in the notes. But I also love what you see. This is, it bounces a bit, but it goes from like 17 and 20 and 25. He talks about people who basically can see but choose not to see. They can hear, but they choose not to hear. Um, and then the consequence is what you see in 25, that they actually are being burned by their choices, but they don't even feel it. It's a spiritual numbness that he's trying to warn the children of Israel about. And it's a warning for us too, that we have a tendency when we choose to deliberately not see. And, and I do this sometimes, right? I, I talked about in the live last week that I have attended for a long time. I deliberately didn't see family history. I knew it was there. I knew it was probably really great, but I deliberately wouldn't look at it because I just didn't want one more thing to feel guilty. <laughs> so I just didn't see. Um, and I didn't realize that until I served that, you know, church service mission, how much sight I was missing. You know, I would go to the temple. Once I kind of got the fever of family history, I was like, oh, the temple opens up and, you know, your time opens up in ways you didn't see before. So I think you have to watch for that and then remind yourself that sometimes when you're kind of deliberately choosing not to see, you're being burned in ways you don't even notice. There's a spiritual numbness that sets in and that's what he warns you about in verse 25. So you got to keep an eye on it. 43 is almost like an extension of 42 because he's, again, trying to kind of rally the troops. He's trying to get this new generation to realize who they are, that they're connected to him. So he talks about how he knows them, how he calls them by name. Again, I think there's covenant basis behind all of that, but he talks about the miracles that they see because they are his. So in two, he references those hero miracles of the children of Israel, the Red Sea parting, the Jordan parting, maybe even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and walking through fire. And then he promises that he will be that same God for this next generation as well. And so he reminds them who he is in three. I love what you see in four because it tells you why he's willing to do all these things. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. His whole motivation always forever is his love for us. That's why he parts the sea. That's why he lets them walk through fire. He loves his children, all of them. And because he loves them, he needs this covenant group to feel empowered because he's got a work to do. This covenant people is going to need to take that light they feel right now and 
beaming out to everybody else. Like that's what you see in the rest of the chapter. Around verse nine, the, the tone kind of changes and it's almost like this, what I've written at the top of verse nine, like that column is like, let's go. That's what my son Sam says all the time now, like, let's go when he's feeling like, okay, we can do this. And I get the feeling that that's how the Lord is he, he's been prompting them. Remember who you are. He's, they, they were sitting in the corner. They're getting that towel wrapped around them. They've got their shot of water in their mouth. Let's go. And what he needs them to do is to beam out to the rest of the world. You are witnesses, is what he says in 10. Let the nations be gathered in nine. I am the Lord. Beside me, there is no savior. Remember who I am. Remember who you are and let's go. And then in 16, he talks about how he makes ways. We talked about highways that he makes and how he, I mean, highways in the middle of giant seeds. That's what the Savior is offering and that new things are coming. So if you look at 19, behold, I will do a new thing and it will spring forth. In 22, O Jacob, thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. He's what I think would be so hard to be in the Savior's shoes and even in Isaiah's shoes is that he's got all these answers and all these solutions and he he's ready and he's got them ramped up and they are at times weary and they don't want it anymore. You know, it's like if you've ever been on a team and your coach is trying to give you guidance and you're just like, I am tapping out. That's what he's trying to warn them against. Um, stay engaged in this fight. Come to me for strength. So in 26, he says this kind of haunting phrase, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. It, it feels like, you know, come now and let us reason together. It's this urgency and this partnership. He's saying, get in this yoke with me. I'm right here. I'm going to take the lion's share of the weight. Just yoke in with me and let's do what needs to be done. And the whole purpose is not so much to save the whole world. It's that we will be justified. So if you look at the end of 26, when we choose to strap in, when we choose to yoke ourselves in with the Savior, the real reason he wants us to do it is because it's what will justify us. When we act as he did, we develop his characteristics, when we walk side by side with him in this yoke and pull, we become like he is. And that's the whole purpose of mortality. So he's just trying to come on, you know, and you can just feel him just pulling through Isaiah, pulling these people to come unto him and to come fast. Um, there's more quotes in the notes from Elder Holland about that, that you're going to love, but let's jump to 44 and see what comes next. In the margins of chapter 44, I have little plants drawn in. <laughs> it just helps me visually to remember what this chapter is about. But here's why. The last few weeks, we've been talking about this controlled burn that needed to happen because of the wickedness of the children of Israel, that they there needed to be a purging that happened so that new growth could come up. And this is where the new growth starts to sprout. This, this next generation that's going to come in that will abandon the false traditions of their parents and choose Jehovah again. And so they're like these little shoots. What I love about this is when I've been praying about my own stewardship and my own kids, I think this is a promise we can rest on, that those seeds of testimony that we've been planting in their hearts all the time in their youth, especially, can grow again. Even if the surface level testimony gets burned, I think all of us have experienced this in one way or another. If you have teenagers or young adults, they go through phases where everything on the surface looks burned and I can't see any remnants of what I taught and it hurts your heart. But you have to remember that the seeds of testimony are buried deep 
And if they will let themselves be exposed to the nourishing water that he is promising to give in rivers and streams that will flow through, then there can be new growth. It takes time and it takes their agency, but there are seeds there. So we don't need to be afraid. In fact, that's what he talks to us about. He says, fear not in verse eight. Don't be afraid. There is nourishment coming. If they will let me, I will help them grow again. And then he warns about their tendencies. I'm not going to go into this in depth, but you can learn a lot more in the notes. But remember, when they feel contention or stress, they are going to have a tendency to fall back on what is their, you know, temptation of choice. And for the children of Israel, it often is idols and graven images. So he's warning them about it. And he uses this really interesting, it's not a parable, but it's sort of like an object lesson. He talks about a carpenter who's who goes and cuts down the wood in the forest, takes some of the wood and uses it for his, you know, cooking. Some of it he uses to heat his house. And then whatever's left over, he carves up and makes a statue or an image of some kind. And then he kneels down and he worships it. And then around 17, he's shocked that he's praying for deliverance and calling this little thing his God, and it can't deliver him. And it's, I think when you see it from the surface, it seems so blatantly apparent, like a of course, that's not going to work. And the thing that came to my mind is, you know, I'm a graphic designer and I'm pretty good at those kind of things. And so if I needed to make a degree, I feel like I could probably do it. You know, <laughs> like if I wanted to make it look like I have some kind of awesome graduate degree from some amazing institution, I could probably do it. Um, but I would know the minute I walked into a job interview, I would actually know that I remember making the file. I remember buying the paper that it's printed on. I remember it coming out of my printer. You know, I know all those steps. So the audacity of me to like pretend that that's real or even convince myself that because I did such a good job making it, it must be the equivalent of a really impressive graduate degree is ridiculous, right? And that's kind of what the Savior is trying to teach here. He's like, why? Why are you spending all your time and energy making something that simply cannot save you? The reason I think that's important for us is I think in every generation, but in ours as well, we have a tendency to want to make God in our own image. Elder Holland talks about this. You can go in the notes and read some of his incredible quotes on it. But um, we want a God that is comfortable. Um, we want to be able to say things like, well, the God I worship would never fill in the blank. You know, the God that I love would treat all people blank. You know, like we want to form God in something that is how we think and how we believe. And what the, the commandments demand is that we love our God the God that he is, not the God that we've crafted. Um, because at the end of the day, even if it was based on an original idea of God, if we've manipulated and contorted it to something that we like and that we will bow down to, it cannot save. And I really think it's not that the Lord is a jealous God. It's that he doesn't want us to get to this place where we need deliverance and we, all we have to hold up is our our version of God that we've been worshiping because he knows in that moment we will despair and he's our parent and he doesn't want us to despair. He doesn't want us to feel that ache and that regret and that pain. He wants us to feel peace and hope. And the only way to do that is to worship the living God, the one that we know is true, the one that is taught by the prophets and the scriptures. That's the only hope we can find. That's what he's trying to warn us about in these verses. And then he talks about the repercussions that happen if you don't. It's really kind of poignant. He says it in 20. He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside. There's a great talk in the notes about it's one thing to have hypocrisy so that others will see and believe something about us. It's another thing if you've convinced yourself 
it's true. You know, for me to make a counterfeit version of a degree and show it off to the world is one thing, but to actually believe in my own heart that that counterfeit degree is just as valuable as the real thing is a whole nother level of, of deceit. And we have to be really careful about it. So golden oats, you can learn some more. Chapter 45 teaches you a little bit more about the characteristics of Christ. And one of the ones I love is that he teaches you why he is the way he is, why he's helping them. So he's helping them find a way back home. One of the ways he's going to do that is by inspiring Cyrus. So do you guys remember when we were reading like back middle of the year, Cyrus was the one that allowed the Jews to leave Babylon and to go rebuild the temple first and then eventually go back to rebuild the walls. And he didn't just let them go. He actually sent them with money. Do you guys remember this? And I remember when we studied it being kind of baffled by it. You know, like why would he do that exactly? And I think 45 is where you find the answer. He's inspired by God. And you learn more in the notes if you want to go into the history about how kind of awesome this prophecy is. But Cyrus isn't even born yet. He's not going to rule for another 200 years. And Isaiah is speaking about how he will help. And it's really just a metaphor for how the Lord makes these highways for his children to come home and how he makes light and peace. So in seven, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace, I create evil, I, the Lord, do all these things. When you go into footnotes, and especially if you go in modern revelation, there's a lot of beautiful doctrine about how the Lord never makes evil. In fact, that in the Book of Mormon, it says exactly the opposite. And you can go in the notes to learn that. But what I love is the way Elder Uchtdorf describes this. So he says, you know, God's light is always shining. And if we're ever in darkness, it's not that the light receded or weakened. It's that we have some obstruction in our way. So you have to be watching for that. Then he also talks about in nine that, you know, woe be unto them that fight against your maker. It's it's that, you know, the parable of the current bush. I can't remember. That's that video where it's like the current bush wants to be a shade tree and he gets chopped all down. That's kind of what you're going to see in 45 as well. And then there's these warnings that we need to look to the right sources. So around 22, look unto me, be saved. It sounds like the brass serpent. The gospel is simple and plain and precious. And if we will simply look upon it and lean towards it, uh, we can find salvation. That's the promise. I also love what we find in 23. This is where he gives us that prophecy that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess this will happen. Remember we talked last time when this verse came up that Neil A. Maxwell Maxwell said that um, if you have any inkling that this might happen, you should do so now. I love this prophecy because I think it promises that I think every knee shall bow because every knee will be able to bow. All those bodies that have been weakened in mortality, all those people who dealt with incredible hard physical things will heal and they will be able to bow. And I just think that will be a miraculous day for all of us. In chapter 46, he's giving you sort of a contrast. So at first he talks about the graven images, the idols that they tend to fall back to when they are struggling. And then he talks about himself as the true God and the and the contrast between them. And it is so stark, you guys. So he talks about in one and two, these other gods that they're They stoop and they bow down, but they can't deliver. So what's ironic about what they create is that they actually carry these idols with them to captivity. They can't, not only can they not deliver them, but they have to be carried on their backs and packed in carts. They have to, because they don't do anything. They have no power. A few of the other verses earlier in the chapters talk about how they have to actually be nailed down because otherwise they'll topple over. Like they have no power, but the children of Israel just, it's their comfort, right? It's what they fall back to when they don't want the 
comfort in Rocky's Corner kind of comfort, they tend to go to wherever they can feel a little bit numb or, you know, nobody's going to expect anything of me if I go over, over here. And that's kind of what I see here. But I love the contrast. So round three, he talks about how he's been with them from the very beginning. Oftentimes you're going to see him reference the womb. And I read a beautiful scholar who talked about how when you see that phrase, the womb, what that means is premortality, that he's been with us from the very beginning of us, of who we are. And that as we come here into mortality, he will stay with us. He says, he compares himself almost to a woman who is pregnant with a child. He says, I've made thee, I will bear thee, I will carry thee, and I will deliver thee. And that he'll be with you until the very, till you're old, that he stays with you, but your idols won't. So if you look at seven, they bear them upon the shoulders, they carry them, talking about the idols, they set them in their place. They cry unto these idols, but they can't do anything. It almost reminded me of like, barnacles on a ship. That's the visual that kept coming into my mind, that these idols become these dead weight things that just pull them down. Things that they thought would bear them up just end up weighing them down. And he's warning them about the risk. And then it, then it shifts completely and it turns into this like, but let's go. You know, I just, there's always, Isaiah is like a motivator. He wants them to move forward. This next generation is not going to fall into those same traps. And so he wants them to awake and arise. In fact, that's what I've written in my margins to the side of eight. I love the way he says it. Remember this and show yourselves men. It is like, you know, the in the Book of Mormon, like shake off the chains that bind you. We have work to do. There's a whole bunch of the notes if you want to learn a little bit more, but I love it. It's like, awake and arouse your faculties. Wake up and let's get moving. Remember what he says. That's what you'll see in nine. Remember who he was. Remember what we've seen. And then don't delay. When you get down to 13, he's talking about, it's not far off and my salvation shall not tarry. One of the children of Israel's temptations that they fall to, in addition to graven images, is this comfort they get with knowing that they are a chosen people and they think they can They'll never lose favor with God. And he's saying, that's not the case. The same way we saw with Nephi in the Book of Mormon, he's saying, shake off those chains. I think that's why Nephi uses Isaiah's words as a reference point, because he's got new converts there too. And he's trying to like, see, like, we got to get up. We got to move. We got to get things back in line. And that takes you to the end of 46. Chapter 47 is where you see some of the warnings about why you can't turn away from the covenant, uh, what you lose in the process. So he talks about how you'll be sitting on the ground. There will be enslavement that happens because of sin, because they lose their connection to the covenant. There will be, they will become as slaves. So a lot of the imagery is described that way, that this shame that they'll feel, that they'll sit in darkness in verse five and be silent, that they, they will have polluted their inheritance that they got in verse six. And then in seven, there's almost a denial that happens where they really thought they would always be honored. I don't know if this is referencing the Davidic covenant or something else, but there is this denial of their circumstances. It sort of amplifies as you go even further. It talks about how you say in your heart that I'm fine. Everything's fine. I can't lose my children. I can't lose my inheritance. Things are fine. I think we see this in our own hearts all the time, right? Where we even if we kind of fall into sin a little bit and we don't necessarily see the repercussions immediately, we start to think, actually, that wasn't so bad. Maybe that's not as big a deal as I always thought it was. And we start to feel like we are immune to the consequences that have been taught. And that's what's happening here. It also talks about that they got, their ways were perverted, that they, like in 10, that the wisdom and the knowledge, it has perverted the, it is distorting their vision and changing who they see. 
Um, when you go a little further into 11, they talk about desolation that comes and that it's going to come fast. These kingdoms will change hands incredibly rapidly, you know, from Assyria to Babylon and from Babylon to Persia, like they are going to change hands almost overnight at times. And that's what he's trying to warn them about. You're getting comfortable in your sin and you think you've got time and you don't have time. So he talks about where they'll turn in those moments of panic, that they're going to turn back to their astrologers and their magicians. And he basically, almost like what you see with Elijah and the priests of Baal, he sort of is saying, if that's what you want, turn to it and tell me how it goes. I don't think it's a coldness. I think he always loves this group and he always is seeking after them, but it's their agency and they've chosen it. And he is warning about what will happen. And what happens is we've seen 15, that they'll wander everyone to his quarter and none shall save thee. It's kind of a haunting hollow place in this week's chapters, but you almost have to let yourself go there so you can appreciate what comes in 48. So let's go there next. Where he kicks things off in 48, he's warning about hypocrisy. So if you look in verse 1 and 2, they are calling themselves a holy city without actually being holy. It's like what we talked about before with me printing out my own certificate of some kind. They're actually starting to believe the lie that they've been telling themselves and he's warning against it. So he's talking about the self-deception that's occurring. And then he talks about how he's not terribly surprised. I thought this was interesting from a parenting perspective. It's almost like he knows his children so well that he's not surprised at where they chose, but he's been giving them prophets and leaders anyway, just on the off chance that they might choose it. He's been preparing things. And then he says why he forgives. So if you look at nine, for my name's sake, will I defer mine anger? And for my praise, I will refrain for thee and cut thee not off. Uh, for his name's sake, for who he is. This again, character of Christ. He is a merciful, loving, never ending God, and he will reach after them. And he talks about how they're going to get tried. That comes in 10. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. There's a lot of conference talks that wrap around this verse. And it teaches you something powerful that he allowed the hardships that happened to the children of Israel to occur. And they're going to have some intense hardships because of their choices from the different conquerors that come through. But he allows those things to happen so that they can be refined. I think he probably wishes he could have refined them in a different way. And this is me projecting a little bit, but I think as a parent, he could have refined them in any number of ways. They just chose this one. And I think that's a warning for us as well, that yes, he can refine us in afflictions that we end up in because of our choices. He can make all things work together for our good, but he also can make good things work together for good. So I think we shouldn't seek after this process. We should be, we should trust that the Lord has a bunch of ways to teach us truth. And I think the children of Israel missed a chance to learn it an easier way. And now we're going to learn it the hard way, which has a lot of parenting application. When you go a little bit further, he invites them to come near. So that's around verse 16. Come near unto me, hear ye this. I love the way he kicks things off around 17. He talks about how he wants to lead them, how they will grow and gain profit if he if they let him lead them. And then there is this, um, I don't know what you'd call it. It's a haunting phrase to me, although it's also so beautiful. It's in 18. Oh, that thou hast hearkened to my commandments, then thy peace would have been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. 
to me, uh, what hit me as a parent in this scenario is oftentimes I see this with my family, right? Not necessarily always my kids, but family members or friends or my students in my class who they could have had a much easier road to learn on. <laughs> but because they chose something else, you sort of ache for them. And I love that the Savior shows that ache, that he wishes they would have picked a different path. He wishes he could have bestowed all those blessings he had stored up. He wishes that vineyard could have thrived. And he's mourning a little bit, I think, that loss. And he says this that phrase, this beautiful I wish I could have given you peace like a river. I mean, that phrase to me was the gospel of Jesus Christ is moving, it's flowing, and it is agile. Just like when you picture a river, it if it encounters a big obstacle or something about if you know the landscape changes, it finds another way around. It softens every stone in its path, it changes the landscape in order to accommodate its power and its motion. That's the gospel to me. I think when you are on the covenant path, it promises peace like a river because no matter what obstacles come your way, it will continue to flow. It'll find a way around or over or under or through. The gospel will find a way to continue. That's the promise that he's offering. And I just, it was comforting to me. I think, especially when you think about his state. That's what he wanted to give his children, but they didn't choose it. So instead they have this hard path where they have to get overthrown by Assyrians and overthrown by Babylonians. He can get them to the exact same destination. That's the incredible gift of God is that he can reroute things so that you get to the same place. But oh, he wishes he could have taken them on that scenic, beautiful, flowing river. And instead they chose a much rockier path. And he is aching for it a little bit. The reason I thought this was so powerful is I think this happens to me and others I know. You know, I was just talking with a friend about she has a sister who made some really hard choices that deeply impacted their whole family. And you have to mourn a little bit for what is lost. You know, things can come back and things can regroup and things can get back to where they needed to be. But you always mourn a little bit for what could have been. And I think the Savior does that as well. But what's powerful about the Savior's example is he never stays there. He never just mourns. He then says, okay, we are where we are. Let's move forward. And that's what you're going to see when you go into 49. Let's go there next. Hmm. Chapter 49 speaks about a servant who's been kind of held in reserve so that when the time is right, he can be used for God's purposes. And this could mean a whole bunch of different people. It could reference Isaiah, Joseph Smith, Nephi. It could reference Jesus Christ himself. And maybe it references all of them. What I love is no matter who you plug into that role, the principles taught in the following verses fit. So he talks about how he was a polished shaft. So for Joseph Smith uses this verse to talk about how he felt that rough stone rolling quote where he felt like he was getting all the rough edges knocked off. That fits in this verse. But I also love what you learn in four, that they feel like they're spending their strength and not getting the returns that they expected. And I think every one of us can relate to that feeling. What I love is what we've seen over and over again in this chapter is that the reason they can still continue their mighty work is because they look to God. So the end of five, my God shall be my strength. Even if every other force turns against me, even the Savior himself had a lot of opposition and betrayal and heart, (laughs) but he continually turned to God for his strength and found a reserve there. And that's where the light comes from. So this is where he starts to shift and talk about the gathering that's going to occur. 
I imagine Nephi delighted in these verses because his family is one of those that was sort of cut off, you know, that they were this branch that got placed somewhere else. And so this promises that things will be restored at some point. So he talks about in an acceptable time. So this is eight. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee. And then he talks about the gathering that will come about. I love the phrase, an acceptable time, that we don't get to determine what is the acceptable time. That's something that's the Lord's timetable. And we have to get comfortable with that promise that when his timing is what he believes is right, it will occur. The answers will come. And then springs of water will flow out. You see that in 10. I love how he talks about it, that all these promises that he will lead them, that the Lord will comfort them in 13. Again, this is empowering comfort, but that's a big promise. He also warns that the Jews are going to doubt the, they're going to doubt that this is all going to work out. So that's around 14. But Zion shall say, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. They're going to worry. And then it's that epic verse in 15 that can a woman forget her sucking child? You know, if you think about nursing mothers, they physically can't forget. Even if they're not a good mother, their bodies will call out to take care of their child. I think it's one of the reasons he made us the way we are. So he could teach us this principle. There's this great talk from Elder Holland where he talks about the beauty of using a mother as a reference point for the Savior. Um, he talks about Moroni 745 and about how a mother endureth all things and beareth all things and believeth all things and hopeth, all, you know, almost like a mother embodies charity. And I loved the tie. So go in the notes and read that. But then there's 16 where he talks about, you've been graven upon the palms of his hands and his, your walls are continually before him. There's, we could talk for half an hour about that verse, but I love the visual of a wounded healer. Um, I just think it's profound that he chose to keep those wounds, that it's what he shows people when he encounters them in the new world. It's how he identifies himself so that people see that that's the, a critical component of who he is, is that he is our savior and our redeemer, and he's engraven you on the palms of his hands. I just, you know, like it doesn't get better than that verse. I love that one. Um, when you go a little further, you'll see this promise about the lost children coming home. One of the worries of the children of Israel will be that things are scattered and lost, and how can it possibly be salvaged? But he promises they will come home, that they'll be brought home. So if you look around verse 21, there's going to be this insurgence of children of Israel in the latter days. Uh, there's a lot of prophecies that teach that basically this is all of us, as we get our patriarchal blessings, basically, be, you know, we realize we're part of the children of Israel and that there will be this kind of Gentile branch that gets added to the children of Israel that we know of from scripture and that this will be this like wellspring of people in the latter days who are all part of this covenant. I love the way it's phrased in 22. It says, thus say the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, this ensign to the nations, and they shall bring thy sons and their arms and their daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. The visual of this for me, I mean, a lot of people use this to talk about missionary work and how one by one we carry people in. But because we've dealt with so much burning, the visual that came to my mind as I was reading this is all those pictures you see, like maybe on Time Magazine or somewhere where you see a firefighter, like literally carrying somebody in from a, you know, from a place of disaster to a place of safety. That's what this gathering is. And it's not just missionaries who wear a name tag. It's any of us who choose to 
reach out and put an arm around someone and teach someone truth. Bring them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this, you know, this carrying from a place of destruction to a place of peace and joy and rest. That's the promise that I just, I love that visual for me. It reminds me of Jesus when he's going to go find that one, you know, he has to leave the 99 and find the one. And I imagine it's dirty and broken and sad, and he has to carry it home. Um, It's just such a gorgeous visual for what the gathering is. And then he promises you won't be ashamed. So if you look around 23, they that wait on the Lord will not be ashamed. You will always find strength. Even when you are belittled or you are mocked, there will be a wellspring of strength that comes from being connected to God and being comforted in his way. And then the end, 25 is this promise that he will save thy children. I think this absolutely applies to the children of Israel in this time and the generations that will follow. But I think it also applies to us that as we honor our covenants, he will reach after our children to the third generation and fourth generation. President Nelson spoke about it in his talks. If you want to read his words and see it better than I can say it, you should go in the notes and find it. But that's a powerful way to end this week's study. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.